welcome to Contourcast. My name is Kat Boyd and I'm joined, as always, with my lovely co-host, David Jameson. How's it going? Uh, it's going okay. I'm feeling a bit mad in the old, uh, the core, as I'm calling it. The core? The core. What's that? The core is the quarantine and I like to... Um, do songs in my head now so my um french maitre d character from the last episode that i mentioned and regret mentioning because several people have brought it up with me um in a note of concern (laughs) is that i now sing songs that have the word war in them replaced with the word core so like core what is it good for absolutely nothing etc etc what about you pete yeah, is your mental health? Uh, like everyone's, not the best, but you know, surviving just about. So Pete is joining us today, all the way from the USA, land of the free, home of the virus. <laughs> it's the American virus. It's the American virus. I mean, you now have more cases than China, I believe, um, and oh, cool. making a real tit of it as well. Not you personally. <laughs> I probably am too, but yeah, I mean, America's doing America right now, you know? Um, Yeah, so we'll get like a, hopefully get a good chat about what's happening in the States um, and maybe like touch on a bit of what's happened in Scotland and generally this new hell that is life. Tell me about the United States, Pete. Like, how is it different from what's going on in Britain? Well, the US is fucking stuff up pretty majorly. Um, They had a long time to respond to this uh, before it actually hit the US and decided to do absolutely nothing except lower interest rates, which it turns out isn't a particularly useful medical response. Um, One thing I've noticed, though, is that the ideological response over here is does seem quite different to to the UK. Like I feel like in the UK there's this sort of um, unified message, a sort of blitz mentality that both the left and the right are doing. You know the whole sort of uh, stay at home, quarantine's good. You know the tabloids sort of calling out anyone who uh, who breaks the law, like you, David, going for your your second walk. walk yeah. <laughs> Can imagine you making the front page any any moment now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like over here, it, it, it's, it seems to be far more mixed, right? Because you actually do have that um, old right wing sort of liberal ish sort of uh, tradition. So okay, for example, where I am in Wisconsin, uh, we've got it's like it's basically a sort of Republican state with a Democratic governor, right? And the governor's been doing the same thing that everyone has, locking down, etc. And while the leadership of the Republican Party is mostly on board with it, you do have a lot of dissent. So Republicans who are saying he's like overstretched the mark, there's like certain state senators saying that uh, the ban that says, you know, meetings of more than like 10 people are banned should be mm. you know that that should be exempt for any church meetings because obviously god's going to protect you uh and then it, like last week um one of the supreme court judges came out absolutely attacking uh the lockdown uh basically and she had this quote which was like um if the people's constitution could be suspended for a public health emergency uh, then democracy is at risk. The republic has fallen. Mm. I mean, so I mean, there's actually a lot, a lot more de- contestation about the uh, the uh, efficacy of a lockdown, basically. I mean, I I'm not gonna defend like the position, like that kind of like libertarian type position, but I do think that there's a degree to which like the West has learned the wrong lessons from China over this virus. So I think that, like, especially when it's like, I'm looking at Hungary, right? So in Hungary, where they've imposed these really strict measures, like very authoritarian responses, like, actually, that's not what worked in China. It's not like mass social surveillance doesn't stop a pandemic. Do you know what I mean? Like the very specific response in Wuhan was that it when central government finally stepped in, right, after local officials had been, you know, trying to 
and do their cover up like the same with SARS. After the central government stepped in and quarantined, there were doctors drafted in from all over China to like, you know, stay, go and address the situation in Wuhan. There was like loads of medical supplies there. Like, and I think that there's a danger that the West is like some governments in the West have looked at that situation and thought that, you know, you need to have like this big authoritarian response in order to stop the pandemic. But that's not, that's not the lesson that we should be learning. The other thing that I think is important about the Chinese response that hasn't been drafted over to the West anywhere is that they have 90 million members of the Communist Party. <laughs> they have, do you know what I mean? They have 90 million members of a party who are at the grassroots and can coordinate like at a local level, which, let's be honest, we ain't got. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting... Um sort of contrast there because you hear a lot of people complaining about and I understand why that kind of American libertarian tradition of you know I mean God guns my property my rules I mean I've been watching that um Netflix uh program Tiger King right yes which really kind of drives home to you that basically the American petty bourgeoisie are like just a semi-criminal class do you know what I mean? They're just a sort of like lumping middle class in the United States who refuse to obey any laws under any circumstances for any reasons. Um, so, but I, yeah, I mean, obviously that can be a reckless thing. It's obviously a part of more kind of right wing culture in the United States. But it's not obviously worse than Europe's answer to that. Europe's historical answer in terms of kind of far right cultures is. Uh, yeah, what's going on in Hungary right now? You know what I mean? I mean, one of the, one of the things that I think is most sociologically fascinating about how the crisis has panned out in Europe is that we've been very potently reminded that half of this continent, more than half of this continent, um, was a dictatorship until very historically recently. By which I don't mean, you know... that those uh, tyrannical continentals are always on the verge of hopping back onto uh, that kind of train of thought. I just mean that you can see in countries like, we've discussed this before, like Italy and Spain, countries which have, um, you know, which were dict dictatorships in Spain's case until very historically recently, until the 1970s. Um, you can see that there's, society moves with greater ease back into of uh, quite heavily policed uh, state. Uh, Greece is is uh, the same, if you look at the way it's handling the refugee crisis, for example. And obviously Hungary. I mean, one of the things that's fascinating about Hungary is this is supposed to be one of the big success stories of the end of history. This is supposed to be one of the countries where liberal democracy triumphed after the fall of the Iron Curtain. And what we found out is that the very elites, people, the people around Orban, Orban and his so-called apparat, the kind of class uh, uh, at the top of uh, Hungarian society, once they had slain the dragon of the Soviet Union, they then went on to discover that they didn't particularly like liberal democracy either, um, and fell back onto a sort of authoritarian nationalism. So it's all very well to say as I'm sure we're about to go on to say, because it's true, look at the Yanks. They are in a, a terrible state and they're not culturally equipped to uh, meet this challenge and all this kind of stuff. It is a bit worrying that, uh, you know, the cultural response in parts of Europe is, yeah, like a kind of, uh, a kind of thick authoritarianism. Do you know what I mean? Just chuck out democracy at the first possible uh, excuse. Uh, and and vest all powers in one guy. The thing is as well, right, as dumb as the Yanks are, look at the response in Britain. Now, it's not, as you would sort of, as you called it, thick authoritarianism. I quite like that. <laughs> but one of the things, that, at least about the US, is that there is actually a level of debate about things, including the response. I mean, if you look at the UK, I'm actually shocked by the level of, quote, national unity, right? Yeah, yeah totally. I mean... Where is the Labour Party? Yeah. I know. It's just um, this Yeah. Posted missing. Right? Like, Boris Johnson is, like, everyone's loving him. Everyone's loving Nicola Sturgeon's response, which, from what I can tell, is 
absolutely nothing that Bojo isn't doing. I mean, like, and, and yet every commentator I see just, like, is uh, loving on Sturgeon because she comes on the TV and looks somewhat presidential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a real fetish for that in, in uh, British politics. Um, I mean, it, it, the Welsh Welsh democracy, such as it is, has uh, now collapsed. I don't know if you heard this, but uh, I think it was just earlier today, Labour, Plaid Cymru and the Conservatives have all joined some common cabinet. So that's a potential precursor. I mean, I thought that this idea of Keir Starmer joining a national unity coalition of some kind was uh, nonsense. But actually, it's, it's already going on. Parts of the Labour Party are already... Uh, I mean, and of course, you know, they are, they are, they are recruiting the Conservatives in Wales. But on a UK level, it would be the Conservatives recruiting Labour uh, into some kind of uh, national unity coalition. There's an interesting debate, by the way, around... What happens to the SNP under those? Did the SNP join an agreement like that? A British national unity government for the duration of the crisis that they're told you're here until we've sorted out a national crisis? I think that would just be utterly ludicrous. I don't. I, I doubt it's going to happen because it's too much of a red rag to an already infuriated nationalist base. But the very fact that that question can be asked in British politics is, I think. I mean, this isn't World War Two. You know, there's been a lot of comparisons drawn, but we're not about to be in- invaded from fortress Europe by a Nazi megalomaniac, right? It's a very serious crisis, but it's not one that requires the suspension of normal dem- democratic operations. And if you compare that to the US, where the Democrats have actually been far more combative with the... And the Democrats, like, you know, one of the most toothless political organisations on the planet, uh, and yet, when it came to the bailout negotiations, they actually forced a lot of things uh, w- with the um, with the Republican majority in the Senate, uh, and basically got at least a few small concessions for workers. Uh, you know, and also uh, in terms of the bailout for business. Initially, the Republicans were pitching that there would be these huge stimulus packages with absolutely no oversight, and the Democrats just refused to play ball. Uh, and now there's going to be quite severe oversight. Uh, in, in terms of the bailouts. Now, part of that is because a bunch of Republican senators got sick, Rand Paul got the coronavirus, didn't bother following any of the protocols, so he infected Mitt Romney, uh, and so now a bunch of the Republican senators are having to sit constantly, and the Republicans have lost their majority in the Senate. So admittedly, there was a, a degree of stupidity there, uh, but nevertheless, it just, it just meant that the Democrats were actually able to, uh, you know, in the House, were, were able to, like, force a lot of the things. Now you can pay that to the response mm-hmm. of the Labour Party, to the SNP. See, I'm not, like, I don't know if I like, entirely agree with that. Like, I think that, I mean, the bailout package, like, essentially transfers the burden of the economic impact away from corporations who are ultimately being bailed out again. Like, you know, it's it has 2008 written all over it and we keep hearing these assurances from Democrats who are saying, oh, you know, but there'll be oversight, there'll be oversight. But actually, there was some oversight of the the bailouts related to 2008 as well, and we saw how that went. I just see, like, that that response, whilst there might be some concessions, it just transfers all of the, all of the burden onto, like, small businesses and workers. Like, there might be some concessions there, but I don't really think that it's... I don't think that any um, like any side is coming out of that with any glory. No, I'm not saying that they're coming out with any glory. It's more just that the Democrats are actually fighting the Republicans as opposed to just saying we need national unity no matter what. And if you compare it to the 08 crisis, that like in the response to it, that's kind of just what happened. Everyone basically just said, "Oh my God, huge crisis." We'll just pass whatever stimulus package the government wants because we we just have to like all band together to to fight this, right? Uh, and you're right, of course, this is ultimately a deal that benefits capital far more than labour. Uh, but capitalist states, that that's always going to happen. Um, but the simple fact that the US is effectively doing a universal basic income and sending out one thousand two hundred dollars to most like most taxpayers is better than what happened in Norway. Um, yeah, I mean, sure, like, I 
I'm not as as maybe it's the core effect in my head, but like even the like one thousand two hundred dollar check, like that is nothing. Like people will not be able to survive for the length of time that they need to survive on that kind of money. It's also a check that's going to the last address which you registered your tax return at. So the chances of some people getting it are minimal. Then there will be like a whole other group of people who just don't get it because they don't have like the the bank account to get it. They don't, do you know what I mean? Like they're not going to be accessible. So I, I mean, yeah, you're, <laughs> I'm not going to be very cheery about any of this, to be honest. Um, but I get, I get your point. Um, I suppose, like, my frustration is that, yeah, so the Labour Party is nowhere, the SNP are, like, feels like they're often, like, tailing the Tories, the Democrats are, like, getting minimal concessions um, in the States, but, like, I don't really see any government that is, like, tying bailouts for corporations to, like, restructuring proposals or trade union rights like why are these things not tied to political agendas where they can be tied to political agendas do you know what I mean like corporations shouldn't get a bailout just so that they can tide themselves over through the lockdown they can get money on but there should be strings attached do you know what I mean like and global capital institutions work like that all the time like the IMF <laughs> loans to Greece are tied to an ideological project so I don't see why in like Scotland like if we are like facilitating any type of loans or bridging for the self-employed that they aren't like tied to some kind of social program do you know what I mean I'm just frustrated that those types of things like aren't really coming forward no you're absolutely right uh, and frankly bailouts should be tied to nationalizations mm-hmm. you know I mean if you look at US um Airlines, for example, getting huge, huge bailouts, um, and the government gets nothing in return. Yeah. Effectively. Yeah. Uh, they should be taken into, into public ownership. Uh, no, I totally agree. I'm, I'm not in any way saying that the response is adequate uh, or that it no, doesn't I know. Uh, benefit capital primarily. It does. I suppose the interesting thing to me, like, and I, as I said before, there's like this sort of weird ideological confusion here. Okay, I'll, I'll, so I'll give you what this is obviously totally anecdotal, but I'll give you one example. Do you know who Mark Cuban is? He's like a sort of like celebrity capitalist over here. He's like so. He's like he's a multi-billionaire. He's like he's on Shark Tank. Uh, okay, he's like a Duncan Ballantyne. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he's one of those types. He also like owns a, a basketball team, the Dallas Mavericks. Um, so this guy is obviously like a, a super capitalism lover, free marketeer, mm-hmm. and so on. And um, and his response. To all of this is kind of interesting, right? Because on the one hand, like, so I listened to an interview with him recently. On the one hand, he was talking about, look, uh, we should celebrate the fact that loads of businesses are going to emerge out of this crisis. In five years' time, we're going to see, like, uh, you know, the, like these businesses have done so well that have, like, you know, come in, blah, 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 right? Usual sort of uh, response. On the other hand, he's also uh, said, that um, he's going to guarantee all his workers full pay throughout the crisis because he just thinks it's the right thing to do and he doesn't want for example the cleaners uh, and the uh, like fast food workers at his basketball stadium going hungry mm. right? and that actually led to a bunch of like superstar basketball players all donating money to the workers who work on their teams like the cleaners like you know uh, yeah. etc etc right um, and he's also like this guy Cuban has also uh, been saying that like yeah in terms of government bailouts you should be bailing out people it shouldn't be like 2008 where they just bailed out Wall Street for every billion dollars um, that the government gives out they should be getting 17 billion dollars back from that same corporation right so not the sort of response that you'd expect I only bring this up to say that, like, there does seem to actually be a lot of ideological confusion and a genuine battle of ideas that could be waged. I'm not saying that's a battle of ideas, right? But I'm saying that actually there is a chance to the mm. left to steer the debate more than it has so far. Where, I mean, if you look at the centre left, as I say, in Europe, in the UK, the centre left just seems to be saying support the government. That seems yeah. to be the main line. Yeah. I, I think I think that there are parts of the ruling class. The, the, the thing is, as well, with the centre-left, of course, it's now very much their historical mission 
to simply um, tail whatever the right is doing at a safe distance. So the reason that, for example, Keir Starmer hasn't said anything of substance about the present crisis is he doesn't want to say anything until he knows what he's got permission to say from Boris Johnson, right? Which just tells you really how redundant and pointless and fucking annoying uh, that politics is. Um, whereas Mark Cuban and the sort of people you're talking about, you know, there are many members of the ruling class, I think, who understand how grave the situation is. And it's interesting that he made that allusion to 2008 because that must be going on in the minds of very many rich people. They must be saying to themselves, how much can we actually ask the population to do? We made promises. We told them they had to suffer, uh, but that after the suffering was done, there'd be some sort of new dispensation. We'd all be happy again. We'd all be drinking champagne again. Remember that? Um, We told people that if they suffered, they would be rewarded for it. And now what do they have? After, at the very end of that 10 years of austerity, literally, in Britain, we were just talking about having the, fo- the first post-austerity budget, which has now been scrapped, right? Uh, there are members of the ruling elite who know how explosive that recognition will be once it arrives, because I don't think most people... Um, have really caught up with the economic situation. People are very, very focused on the uh, virus for obvious reasons. But once people understand that that 10 years of pain was simply so that we could arrive back in identically the same situation, possibly worse at the end of it. So there there are members of the ruling class who are much smarter than people on the centre-left. If Keir Starmer was told by a bunch of bankers, listen, we're going to have to do austerity again and fuck public services and so fuck you, right? I think he'd be more likely to say yes than Boris Johnson would. I think he, uh, not maybe not Boris Johnson, because I don't, I don't really hold much of a, a candle for fucking, I don't really believe he's this, uh, you know, potential future Churchill or something, right? But a smart member of the ruling class would say no much more readily than uh, a figure on the centre or centre-left uh, would. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example. I mean, it's interesting that you have philanthropists, uh, you know, wealthy philanthropists saying stuff like that in the United States. Um, Andrew Wilson uh, in Scotland, who was the architect of the SNP's Growth Commission, one of the major thinkers behind SNP and Scottish government economic policy, put a paper out, yes, put a blog out yesterday through Charlotte Street Partners saying... No one should be saying make the rich pay for this crisis. We must accept that we all have to shoulder the burden. So he's jumped the gun, right? Because at the moment, no rich people are saying this. At the moment, rich people are just saying, we're all in it together, spirit of the blitz. Everyone, you know, well, not hold hands, right? Because you might get coronavirus. But uh, everyone, national effort, in it together, coronavirus, we can do it. Applaud the NHS, right? That's what all the rich people are saying right now. There's a lot of message discipline going on. They, a lot of them presumably think, well, and then how are we going to change that message in nine months or a year's time when we have to start dealing with the economic fallout and so on, right? In Scotland, our neolibs have jumped the gun and are now already telling working class, lecturing again, waving their finger at working class people and saying, get ready to pay for it. Get ready to pay for it. That's the fucking brains going on up here. And it just shows you that People who are attached to the centre-left in this crisis, it's meaningless. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's just Tory, but more stupid, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, but this, I mean, we're all, we did say after the podcast that we did with Ben um, about Spain that we were going to stop, like, just kicking into the centre-left for the entirety of this crisis. <laughs> Fat but, chance. <laughs> but it feels kind of impossible at the moment because I think that what this crisis does and the centre-left response or lack of response, what it does is it really exposes the weaknesses of centre-left demands or asks of capitalism, which entirely uncomfortably can coexist within the existing structures. And what we want to see, which are more radical demands that might not require socialism, quote-unquote, but will actually challenge the existing system. So, for example, like the question of nationalisation. Do you know what I mean? So rather than just saying, okay, so we've got this huge bailout package worth billions, you know, um, 
to make sure that the economy like sustains itself like it's quite dramatic but it's within the the coexisting system do you know what i mean like making demands around self-employed is like it's a big thing to ask for but it coexists with the the existing structures of, of power and capitalism However, if we want to start making demands around like socialised production of medicines or um, nationalising industries rather than bailing them out, like they can exist comfortably with the existing structures. And that's really what we need. And I think that that's what's being exposed right now in terms of the centre-left's demands. Absolutely. I mean, actually the right's being far more combative in this sort of direction. I mean, fair enough, they're effectively arguing for state capitalism, but to be honest, that's a more radical sort of proposal than what most of the centre-left are offering right now. I mean, Trump's enacted the um, uh, the, the Defence Production Act, again, in the US, so he can order industries to convert towards building medical supplies. Now, admittedly, there's a lot of problems with that, uh, we'll talk about later, but it's nevertheless more than what a lot of the left are arguing for. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting because Zizek mentioned that in his article, um, the the blog piece that he did maybe like a week ago on Monday. I mean, it's like two weeks ago now, um, where he talked about how Trump had threatened to, you know, basically say to companies, I am just going to like seize control of your production and tell you what to produce, which is just like, it's a very, very radical step in the US. Or, I mean, in any of the advanced capitalist economies. No, absolutely. I mean, so, for example, he's, he's uh, ordered General Motors to start producing ventilators. Because there's huge, like, there's problems around basically every aspect of the medical infrastructure uh, in the US. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. The US is built onto it. But ventilators are, like, the worst aspect of it, right? Um, and so he, uh, using this, uh, using the Defense Production Act, is, is ordered producing ventilators. Um, which seems in many respects pretty radical. It's worth actually talking about this all super, super quickly, um, mm-hmm. just like looking at the, the history of the US and where this problem came from. Because um, basically about 15 years ago, the US decided that it uh, needed to start stockpiling ventilators. But all of the existing companies that were, that were producing them uh, were selling them at like really high rates so they ended up basically tendering this out saying like can someone come up with a prototype of a ventilator that's more cost effective etc etc uh and in in the end this company newport medical it's a small californian company you know um basically won this tender started producing prototypes and so on uh and initially the government was quite happy that they were about to move into production of these um except that in 2012 Newport Medical was bought out by this much larger medical company, Covidian. So, like, as I say, Newport Medical's worth 100 million, Covidian's worth 26 billion. <laughs> and the thing is, Covidian already produced a ventilator, one of the companies that produced it at a really high price. So basically, they just put the brakes on with this new technology that is being imported, right? And so it cuts to now with this crisis. Right? The most conservative estimates are that the US needs at least 70,000 uh, ventilators. We've got 16,000. I mean, that's how, that is how bad it is. Yeah. Now, they've, they've invoked the Defence Production Act to start trying to get other companies to produce them. The problem is that ventilators are actually very complicated, right? There's more than 100 parts in each ventilator. Um, and it takes highly skilled workers and technicians who are trained in building ventilators to make them. And so while GM's been told they had to start making ventilators, it's not quite clear that an auto plant can just immediately transition to making ventilators yeah. in a very short time period. Because like, if you make a mistake with the, like building that ventilator and it malfunctions, people die. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's really interesting. And it also brings out some other points about the West, particularly the US's response to the pandemic. Because one of the other big factors within the like success around the Chinese response has been that even though medical care in China has suffered quite a lot of cuts, do you know what I mean? I'm not like 
bigging up the Chinese model here. Look, there's still a big practicing community, but there's also loads of public sector research in, in the Chinese medical system. Now, when you look at like the West and the role of, you know, and I hate to be the guy to say it, but I'm going to say it, big pharma. <laughs> like, this is a massive structural problem when it comes to addressing pandemics. Because what happens is big pharma present themselves, these companies present themselves as being at the forefront of, like, research and development, which is absolute nonsense. Every single big pharma company outspends their own research and development on advertising. They spend more on advertising, usually Viagra, than they do <laughs> on research and development for new drugs, vaccines to coronaviruses. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's the reality is that they don't invest in research the way that they present that they do. And what uh, what they also do, like these big pharma companies, is that when a smaller competitor starts to come up with innovative, cheap solutions, right? So when surprise like when the, the kind of the idea of like innovation competition actually works all that they do is they just buy up these smaller competitors and like put their foot down on their production of a cheap supply of a new drug do you know what i mean like and this is nothing this is nothing new but i think it's these sorts of structural problems that are creating a different that are obviously creating a different response to the pandemic, but that, that pose massive problems for future pandemics. Because I, like, again, like, I'm, I know I'm playing the goth card here, but see once we've done this one, right? the, the chances of this happening again are not, they're not remote. Like, because, I, like, these diseases come from bats. Bats live in caves. But as climate crisis accelerates, then what you have is you have the mixing together of different species with humans and spaces that aren't usual spaces for those things. And you have everything all like mushed together faster and faster. And that's how these diseases are like being created. So unless we're at, there's governments who are prepared to take on big pharma, like, and not just like sort out drug prices but like actually have public sector production of medicine then we'll be in a situation over and over again I, I was reading some interesting stuff about this in terms of where you know like why contagions have become uh this modern phenomenon and it is basically like um because capitalism is placing such an enormous strain simultaneously both on its own huge mass agribusiness and on the natural world. So the scientists, for example, finding that in parts of the rainforest where the rainforest is being destroyed and species of animals are being forced together in close uh, proximity, which you wouldn't usually share that close proximity, they're finding there's a higher and higher um, like instances of uh, new versions of viruses forming and mutating. Uh, also, I understand that Ebola um, emerged in West Africa because of um, plantations of um, what's that oil that you know lots of environmentalists hate. Palm oil. Yeah, it was something like that. Huge plantations were established in West Africa, um, and they attracted bats, and th and the bats then transmitted Ebola to humans. So that's where Ebola comes from. It's it's fascinating, I think, actually, that you know people talk about like the uh, the capitalist scene and stuff like that of a world whose ecology is more and more dominated by abstract forces of capitalism, even than direct and conscious human activity. So like whole new uh, viruses are spawning because of the just increasing burden that capitalism is placing. Not even just, I mean, obviously quite a lot of these viruses come from uh, like concentrated uh, dairy farming, poultry farming and stuff like that. But they're even occurring at increasing rates inside the natural world. Yeah, but I, I think that the, the climate crisis angle is dead important. But 
I also like want to return to this like the the stuff around big pharma because what I, what ultimately I'm trying to say is that the solutions are there, right? The human capability and ingenuity for engineering a vaccine to coronaviruses is available, but the structures that we have in our society do not support that type of research. The problem is private ownership of pharmaceuticals, which are fundamentally disinterested in finding universal solutions to these things. Like a universal vaccine is possible, but the structures that we have don't permit it. There's also been a massive, like a massive rollback, to be honest, of the innovation in pharmaceuticals from the the 40s and 50s. So when the antibiotics revolution like really kicked in and you had like big antibiotics developing, like cutting down disease and um, death in childhood and all these things. Now, like, what is it? Something like 50,000 Americans die every year from diseases they contract in hospitals like C. diff, MRSA, these are curable diseases. Do you know what I mean? I I suppose I'm just like really into hating big pharma right now. No, absolutely. I mean, I think this whole thing is just exposed in Mm. such a huge way, particularly in the US, but everywhere. I mean, uh, it actually came out today. Trump tried to, there's basically a smaller company, like medical company in Germany um, that randomly appears to be uh, like one of the furthest ahead with developing a vaccine. What was the response? Trump tried to buy it. He offered him a billion dollars to buy it. Why? So that it could be patented. So that like, um, basically like, you know, it could be patented uh, 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 and the US economy would be- uh, would benefit more. I mean, that's the sort of response that we have right now. Um, Do you know the there are some terrifying examples of competitions over um, scarce medical resources. I was reading just before I came on uh, to this podcast that um, NHS Wales and NHS England, it transpired, were involved in a bidding war for testing kits. And uh, it was going on in secret, right? And it ended with... The English NHS presumably outbidding the Welsh NHS because the Welsh NHS's order of testing kits was cancelled even though the Welsh NHS had already written and submitted an order. An order had been agreed for testing kits to go to Welsh hospitals. And uh, the whatever company this is, private company that provides the test, cancelled the order which is just uh, presumably at the behest of a rival wing of the National Health Service, which just shows you how utterly cannibalised the National Health Service now is because of the marketization and the fragment- fragmentation of the National Health Service. A bidding war within separate wings of the National Health Service. Also, in Europe, countries are impounding each other's medical supplies as they pass through their territory. So EU member countries are stealing each other's medical supplies, right? It, it shows you that essential truism of the materialist theory of, uh, you know, social processes and, and history, which is when a scarcity is created, people will fight for it. All of that, all the crap disappears overnight about how we're in it together and all that when... Um, there's suddenly been a a, a really constricted scarcity in specific things, respirators, uh, medical solutions to the virus, other medical supplies. All of a sudden, everyone's fighting over it. I mean, I'm really glad that you brought that up just now, David, like this, like... Um, European Union member states impounding each other's medical supplies as it um, travels through their country because really it wouldn't Contercast wouldn't be Contercast if we didn't put the boot in to the centre left and the European Union (laughs) (laughs) but like on a a serious note like what is the European Union right now? Like what is its purpose? It abandoned Italy like Countries have just closed their borders and it's almost an exact replica of the European Union's disgraceful and unforgivable response to the refugee crisis, which was basically each nation unto itself. 
Like the idea of the EU is dying and Brexit is only a tiny part of that because what this pandemic has proven is that the EU is unable to coordinate the sharing of resources and unable to coordinate a political response to the crisis. Yanis Varoufakis came out for Brexit. Do you see that? Yeah, I know. Varoufakis is out for Brexit. Yeah, there you go. Um, Pete, you had mentioned earlier, like when we were chatting before we started recording, that you had been, um, some of your core reading had involved a book on cholera. That's right. My, my, my uh, core reading is, uh, I'm reading uh, Camus' The Plague for fun. Uh, and also Richard Evans, the historian. <laughs> so he writes about like pandemics throughout history. Yeah. And um, it's kind of interesting. So I mean, like sort of feeding off what what David was sort of saying there around uh, around that sort of like materialist uh, theory of history being proven. There's a, like there's a few truths that I think we can almost learn from this, like a few sort of theoretical actualities, if you like, right? So. He, he was writing about, there's one point in which he's writing about uh, the response of merchants, for example, in Venice at the, t- uh, at the time of cholera. Um, and basically the, the response uh, is always been just like, ignore what the doctors are saying. They're kind of like, that, you know, they're like, uh, they're exaggerating. The economy needs to keep going. We need to keep making money. And of course that just exacerbates the crisis. But effectively at every point in history, when you have a, an outbreak like this, the response initially from economic elite, whether it be capitalists, merchants, or whatever, is let's keep going with the economy. That was the first thing. Cat, sorry, I thought you had your hand up. No, I was scratching my chin. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing, um, and I think this is kind of interesting, right, um, is that the thing about cholera is that it was... It was a, a, a pandemic that class discriminated, right? It, it impacted working class people most of all. And that's because richer people tended to live higher up, uh, working class lower down, closer to the water, in highly dense populations and so on. So cholera spread like wildfire. And so it's just generally accepted that it was like a class discriminatory disease. Now, coronavirus isn't like that, right? It infects everyone. But if it does discriminate, it discriminates against old people the most. And it just sort of feels like it's playing into this general narrative that we've had for a while, right? For years now, uh, the sort of narrative has been uh, in the media and so on that, like, class is over, it doesn't really matter. If there's a division in society, it's really about age, right? Look at Brexit. Young people vote Remain, old people vote Brexit. In the US, young people vote for Bernie, older people vote for either Trump or Biden or whatever. The central cleavage is age. And weirdly, this virus seems to be trying to play into that narrative, right? (laughs) (laughs) Age is the big thing. Uh, now, obviously, like that's also slightly overblown. In the US, for example, if you don't have healthcare because you're poor, working class, etc., then you're more likely to die. Hmm. So there's definitely an intersection of class and age here, but I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think that's re- What I also find interesting about that stuff that you were saying about cholera is the the way that like plague epidemics of the 16th and 17th century played this massive role in the transfer of power centres from the Mediterranean countries like Italy towards the Atlantic countries. And I think it's possible that this pandemic is mm, accelerating the decline of the US as a superpower and accelerating or giving China an accelerated sense of what I'm going to call moral hegemony as well as like military and economic power. There's a sense of China's moral hegemony, you know, about how they like put the doctors in. Like it's the same with like, I mean, Cuba, right? (laughs) As well, like Cuba's been all over the press. I've not seen Cuba get such a good time in the press for a long time. But I think that the the kind of Chinese moral hegemony has been accelerated definitely um, by the pandemic and that this transfer of power is kind of, it's, it's underway now. Absolutely. I mean, just, just what you're talking about uh, before in terms of Italy, right? In a situation where the European Union is unable to respond, 
doesn't support Italy, and actually Italy is getting more medical support from China. This is a country where anti-EU opinion is already massively high. What do you think the consequence of that sort of thing is going to be? It means that the, geo, like the geopolitical uh, reach of China is increasing as the West's cohesion as, uh, as a block is decreasing. Yeah. See one thing about what you were saying about cholera there and about the class impacts of diseases, right? There is a really interesting sense in which the rich and powerful becoming infected. So in... in um, I mean, diseases like environmental catastrophes, uh, you know, infectious diseases have actually played a really instrumental and important role in the development of human history. So famously, one of the things that gave birth to the modern era in Europe, you know, things like the Reformation and then on from there to the kind of bourgeois revolutions and the Enlightenment and so on, one of the factors that played into those developments was the bubonic plague. Um, and one of the things that it did was it destroyed the um, the status of the of the feudal ruling elite. It destroyed public faith um, before there was a public. It, it it destroyed mass faith in the 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 kind of feudal leadership in in European societies for a very simple reason, which is that because uh, the you know the the aristocracy and so on and the existing church authorities couldn't control the bubonic plague, the assumption of uh, the lower social orders was, um, A, what you say about the way the world is ordered is at best useless, but probably B, God is punishing you. Because you're getting sick, I know that you're wrong. I know that God hasn't chosen you because you've got the bubonic plague, basically, right? So everything you've said to me is a lie and an enormously destabling, destabilizing impact because why would a disease sent from God to punish people for sinfulness? Why would it afflict the poor and the rich alike? That must mean that the rich have not been chosen by God. You know what I mean? The powerful aren't God's representatives and so on. The problem with um, that dynamic today is so obviously in Britain, Boris Johnson has it, uh, Dominic Cummings has it. I mean, I remember a few weeks ago when people were like, haha, what a shithole country Iran is, half their government has it. Half of all the governments are going to fucking have it, right? But in a way, it doesn't play that kind of role anymore because in modern class ideology, and I mean very modern, I mean only the last sort of 20 or 30 years, it's become very fashionable for the rich to constantly tell us how like us they are. You know what I mean? It's no longer like we're the special chosen people. It's I'm like you. And in the last sort of 10 years, it's become even more extreme than that. It's it's become MPs are the real victims. You know what I mean? Do you you remember that in the last couple of years? It's all the stuff about like, now that the people have Twitter, it's the MPs and the rich who are oppressed. You know what I mean? By by the bullying mob of the uh, of the public. It's become very common and it's still going on to this day. If you go on Scottish politics Twitter today, you will see loads of politicians complaining about public behaviour, complaining about online behaviour, constantly complaining, like it's part of their democratic duty to keep pointing out how immoral the electorate are. Uh, over and over again. That's that's very. It's a very interesting development in modern class culture. Um, so it's actually going to help them in a way. Do you know what I mean? That they can say, "Oh, see, we've been victimized by the by by the virus that affects everyone, and we are human too." You know what I mean? Uh, so, but I wonder. I don't know. I I so I'm I'm interested to see over the longer time what the ideological impact of the disease is. If people recognize it as something which actually undermines the class order or whether it allows people to pretend that we are just a society i mean that's another debate that's really kicked off boris johnson made a a video where he said we are a society uh, ostensibly refuting that thatcherite line i actually wonder if actually that argument isn't the more aggressive one these days that we are an organic community of human beings who are all equal in some sense that's actually more important to modern capitalist ideology than the idea of like rampant individualism and things like that. I think it's more ideologically important for the system, particularly at a time like this, but perhaps in general, to pre- pretend that the inequalities that we see in society are the, a product of the organic interplay 
of a community of people who may be different, who may not agree on everything, but at the end of the day, it's all our society. This society is as much mine as it is Boris Johnson's, and hey, look, we can both get coronavirus. You know, so I think, in a sense, ruling class ideas are a, a bit more immunised, dare I say, to this uh, to this present crisis. <laughs> <laughs> We're on the Contercast hat trick now because we've done uh, anti-EU, centre-left, gets a kick in, and we've got God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a return of God now. Well, it's interesting, though, I think what you're saying there. Um, the thing is, though, that for there to be a us, there always has to be a them, right? For it to be our society, there has to be an other. Mm. And in this case, there's also been a rise of xenophobia. Now, I'm interested in what's happening in the UK, because in the US, it's really palpable. Anti-Chinese sentiment is massive. The amount of racially motivated attacks has just skyrocketed against, um, against Asians. Um, and I'm just wondering if they're anything similar uh, in the UK. And I mean, look, this is, this is something that's, that always happens historically, right? Mm. Um, when, when there's some sort of uh, outbreak like this, because uh, there's, you know, there's always a fear of other people from outside bringing in a dis- And that sort of narrative certainly seems to be, uh, right? That like shut down borders. And even in China, there's now a sort of anti-US, like, anti-Western sentiment because it's now Westerners bringing coronavirus back. Um, yeah. What's happening in the UK? Well, not nothing like that so far. I mean, I, I, as I understand it, uh, Chinese takeaways lost their business very quickly when the when the crisis first emerged. But I think that's probably more kind of like hypochondria than actually like organised racism. But I, yeah, I mean it. Uh, you can see it happening. I mean, we we we've all seen this process work out in a very close detail over Islamophobia. I mean, we are we probably all three of us remember when Islamophobia was not a major form of racism in Western uh, society, and it became so almost overnight. Um, and it was very deliberately and consciously constructed by people in power in the media, uh, in in all political parties. Actually, in Britain, of course. The Labour Party was more important to that process than the Conservative Party for people who think that racism is just something that comes from the right. I suspect, I, I assume that, uh, I mean, Trump's already doing it, obviously, China virus and so on. I assume that um, uh, that Chinese racism is going to be a more become a more important feature uh, of uh, Western uh, life. Probably that was something that was always going to happen in the United States. And of course... Historically, the United States has a much stronger history of that. You know, the yellow peril and all that kind of stuff. There's not so much of a history of that in Britain. I mean, there is some because Britain had some imperial engagements in China. But because um, a a fight was always going to break out eventually between the United States and China over the parts of the Pacific Ocean, uh, you would have thought that would always come. But yeah, I mean, I, I assume now that's been kind of kicked off. And if that disease starts in the United States, presumably it's a matter of time before it arrives here. So, Pete, what sort of like, what sort of resistance is there like on, like out in the US? Like, I mean, you're in Wisconsin, but like I've seen quite a lot of um, news stories about like Amazon workers on strike, healthcare workers on strike. And I was just wondering, like, what else has been going on? Yeah, it's really interesting that in this time we have actually seen a rise of uh, working class action. It's usually uh, very grassroots, wildcat strikes and that sort of thing. But we've seen um, a walkout of workers at Amazon warehouses in Staten Island. That looks like it could potentially be spreading. There's mm-hmm. stirrings in Walmart as well. Um, and obviously it's because... Uh, Health and safety yeah. is such an issue now. And the reality is, Amazon workers, Walmart workers, and so on are just getting absolutely no protection. They don't get sick pay. Uh, they're uh, highly precarious workers being forced into the front line. They are effectively yeah. emergency workers. Um, and they're actually taking action to their own hands. There's also one other thing that just got announced today that I think is really interesting, which is that workers at General Electric have been staging protests demanding the General Electric, instead of just shutting down production, turns production into uh, uh, building ventilators. And the thing is that those workers already actually have skills in this, because General Electric does 
manufacture ventilators yeah. already. So they're actually staging protests against management saying you should just transfer all production to this. We want to be working doing this. I mean, I think that it's really... It is the thing that gives me a little like bit of light and a bit of hope throughout this um, pandemic is watching the different like workers' resistance, like, those little sparks like going off everywhere. And I think that there's been like a real concern uh, on the left that somehow we're not going to be able to, we're not going to be able to protest the same way that we would or engage the same way that we would. Um, and I think all of that is true. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing that like our tactics of resistance <laughs> might have to, you know, differ. Uh, David and I talked about this fairly recently. I think we're we're discussing the format for like a traditional left wing meeting was basically just lifted from the Methodists. Do you know what I mean? You would like go in a church hall, someone would be doing a lead off, <laughs> like some kind of sermon. There would be question and answers and then there would be a mass conversion at the end. Do you know what I mean? It's basically join the SWP. And um, so I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that we might have to like look at our tactics, how we organise. And um, I think that there are opportunities there, like doing things online or visit, doing like lectures online, which I know that that's something that Contour is going to look at. Um, which I'm dead excited about. But I also think that it's really important that we don't cede public space. Like, I think it's really important that people still have a way to, like, collectively demonstrate. And of course there are ways to do this. I saw an amazing picture of healthcare workers on strike um, yesterday. And there was, like, a woman doing a kind of, like, press conference at the podium, but behind her were about, like, 25 workers. But they were all, like, socially distancing. So there was, like, about three metres in between each worker. And they were still, like, holding their placards. And it just looked, like, it looked quite, it looked quite weird, to be honest, but, like, not in a bad way and not in a sort of, like, it looked ridiculous way. It was just quite different. Um, and I think that the optics of like protest is, I think it is important. Um, so I was thinking about like, why can't you have a demonstration? Like if it comes to that point where you need to have on the streets resistance, where people just observe social distancing, like there's no reason that you can't have like a hundred people in George Square all standing two meters apart. Like if that's what needs to happen, like, I mean, maybe... Maybe I've just been locked in the core too long, but uh, I, I I think we can still take to the streets. I think it's a great point. As I say, those workers that were protesting uh, at General Electric in Boston, Massachusetts, that's exactly what they did, right? They, they observed social distancing, and I'm guessing it probably made the protest look, look a lot bigger as well. <laughs> Maybe that's what we should do for like all future protests is just make sure people stand like two metres apart so that it looks a lot busier. Yeah, invent fake viruses. <laughs> Spread rumours. Were, were any of you hoping that like because today's April 1st that this whole thing was just a dead elaborate April Fool's? Yeah, I can just tell people I've joined another Europe is possible. I should have just devoted the whole podcast to that. Oh, I really. I wish you had done that as your April Fools. That would have been a cracker. Yeah. Why I've why I'm back in Kiostama for Labour leader. <laughs> well, to be fair, he is probably the best looking. I found out he's fifty six. By the way, he's a good looking fifty six. He moisturises before bed every night. Is that quality He has that what? Bovine quality. Bovine, bovine, yeah. bovine quality. He's a bit cow-like, yeah. Do you think? A little bit, except his eyes are a bit close together. Yeah, I'd say he's got... It's more like piggy eyes than bovine eyes. <laughs> Look, I, I think he's the most attractive out of the leadership candidates. There you go, Kia. Uh, if if uh, Labour leadership doesn't work out for you, come to Glasgow. What for? A date? I. <laughs> we have been in the core too long yeah also right I totally missed out on April Fool's it was only when I was talking to you just before we started this I was like oh yeah it's April 1st I just completely lost track of time 
know what day it is. <laughs> don't know what week it is. How could you forget the most important holiday of the year? It's not a holiday, but how could you forget the most important date? April Fools. Everyone loves it. No one at all, you know, pretends to find it humorous when for the first half of the day everyone's coming up with fake news stories and stuff. That's never not funny. Oh, no, I, like, I genuinely do find it funny. I, t- I tweeted my April Fools, which was a fake news article about how Scotland was going to be the first country to ban alcohol during the outbreak of COVID-19. Sounds Presbyterian. It appeals to me. Yeah, that's what I said, following in the... The great Scottish traditions of John Knox and John McLean. Produce a riot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, the worst April Fools that ever happened to me was when I was about 17 um, and I had like a high school boyfriend and I remember my dad woke me up in the morning and he was like, oh, Katrina, Katrina, that's Barry on the phone for you. And I was obviously like, oh, all excited. And then I picked up the phone and there was no one there. <laughs> Uh, I'm now 35 and I remember it every year. <laughs> <laughs> Are we done? Probably done, so I'm just looking for my shoes and shit so I can... <laughs> Man, is that your flat? It is a palace. Do you have a flat over several floors? It's two floors, but it's like... It's one big uh, room over two floors. That's nice, though. I love your bookshelves. Really nice. Right, I need to do the I need to do the outro so we can stop recording. Um, okay, well we've come to the end of today's Corona Cast. Hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks very much, Pete, for joining us. Thanks for chatting. I really had fun. Yeah, me too. Um, I've also tweeted a picture of this conversation so that all of our listeners can appreciate David's new moustache. It's, I mean, it's very uh, German chic. Oh, I mean, it, I, I accidentally kind of shaved it a bit close and it's come across a wee bit, you know, Adolf Hitler. Uh, so, I mean, thankfully, I'm not making a lot of public engagement. <laughs> um, okay, well. to capture it. Yeah. No. Just, I'll always remember this time in the core when David had that moustache. Um, well, yeah that's us folks um if you've enjoyed listening to us then think about donating to our patreon you can follow us on twitter at contour scott um and three of us all have twitter as well if you want to tweet any feedback at us or love letters or hate mail all is gratefully received during these dark times 